Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 138, Religious Lives. This show is free and independent due to member support. Without members, this just wouldn't be possible. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And this month, you can just go and click on the image of Hipster Hadrian enjoying a pint. And thank you very much to Angelica, Kaylee, and Adam for contributing already. All right, so last week we talked about how uneven and confused the conversion of Britain was, and how the beliefs of one village might not bear all that much similarity to the beliefs of another village, even though they might both profess to worship the same god. Well, what about the people whose job it is to worship and evangelize that god? What about the men and women of the cloth? Sure, as we learned last week, Monasteries, in many ways, were a bit like snowflakes, and even worse, simply because someone held the title of, say, priest, it was no guarantee that he would even know what the Ten Commandments were, or even that there were Ten Commandments. Father Unferth might be professing the seven polite suggestions, for all we know. I am the Lord thy God, and I would appreciate it if you'd write from time to time, but if you're too busy, I understand. And back in the alcohol episodes, we talked about the staggering amount of booze that the monks were allotted. But we haven't talked all that much about what their actual lives were like. And while some of the condemnations that we've heard about have made the island sound like it was full of ignorant drunk monks, let's not forget that great thinkers such as Alcuin and Bede came from British religious orders as well. So in order to get a fuller idea of what was occurring in Britain in this era, Let's talk about a couple examples of what religious life was like. And as you already know, life in Britain was extremely varied at this point. So what I'll be giving you isn't an example of the average religious life, but rather just a couple glimpses into individual lives. We can't reliably assume that these are exemplars that can be applied to the majority of men and women of the cloth. But it's the best we've got. So here we go. By the 7th century, which is where we are, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were already becoming peppered with religious communities. Religious houses with royal support were establishing themselves in kingdoms that were staunchly pagan only a hundred years earlier. And we see abbeys of nuns being founded and headed up by powerful abbesses like Hild, and monasteries full of celibate men being led by a bishop. And we also see priests living among the people, and with their families. Yeah, priests at this point were marrying, and presumably doing all the things married couples do, arguing over bills, discussing what to have for dinner, and of course, having kids. But like I said in the last episode, the monks and nuns were primarily the ones doing the heavy lifting at this point in time in Britain. So why don't we have a look at a couple religious communities? And to start with, Let's look at the double monastery at Hartlepool, since it has already been mentioned in the show, with it coming to prominence in our story with the story of Abbas Hild of Whitby, who was formerly Abbas Hild of Hartlepool. Now, as you might remember, Hartlepool was a Northumbrian double monastery that was devastated by some sort of fire, and that resulted in Abbas Hild relocating to Whitby. 
But thanks to archaeological work, we have been able to learn quite a bit about early monastic life from the site, even though it was destroyed. To start with, you might be wondering what the lives of the monks and nuns were like. After all, because this was a double monastery, it housed both men and women. So how was that organized? And how was everything else organized, for that matter? Well, as with all other religious houses of the time, they lived under the direction of a single point of authority within the institution. In some cases, it was a bishop, and in the case of Hartlepool, it was an abbess. And their lives were governed by a set of rules, which isn't too surprising. Now, later on, by the 10th century, most monasteries would be living under the Benedictine rule. But in the 7th century, these houses were a little more punk rock. The term that some scholars use when describing the rules that govern monasteries and abbeys of this era is mixed rules. What they're saying is that their code of ethics and behavior was a haphazard collection of rules drawn from a variety of religious houses from both within Britain and without. They came from all over the place and served the particular needs of the community at the time. Like with everything else, these things seem like they were individualized at this point and wouldn't become standardized for another two to three hundred years. Now, as I mentioned, Hartlepool was an Irish-inspired double monastery, and it wasn't the only one operating in Anglo-Saxon territories. And so looking at its layout, we can learn quite a bit about how their lives were ordered. For example, it looks like at Hartlepool, there was a male zone and a female zone. So they were keeping the group separate, as you might imagine. And there was also a crafting zone, a high-status burial zone, which housed male priests and wealthy lay families, another burial zone that looked like it was for nuns, and then a low-status burial zone, which was the farthest distance from the monastery, and given the presence of the old Roman-style cyst burials, it was probably for the local farming families. So yeah, looking at the existence of high-status burial zones and low-status burial zones, it shows us that even in death, even within monastic life, your status still had an impact. But despite all those different zones, the real activity took place towards the center of the monastery, since that's where most of the ritual and religious activities occurred. And then the rest of the stuff was placed around the exterior. And that sort of arrangement seems to have been the case in a number of other early monasteries throughout Britain. Now, something interesting about the cemeteries is that in the religious cemeteries, you see inscribed headstones with a variety of different handwriting styles. And much like how we can see different styles of handwriting in manuscripts, this indicates that within Hartlepool, there is a high level of literacy for the time. And that is in keeping with the written record that relates that members of some religious houses would dedicate themselves to studying reading and writing in addition to studying the scriptures. So right from the outset, we're seeing their lives were ordered and segregated, even within double monasteries, with an attention to sex and status. But what were their lives like? It's one thing to say they had different zones for different things and your status still haunts you throughout your life and death, even in a cloister, but that doesn't tell you all too much about their lives, does it? Well, we can learn quite a bit about their lives from the land that they inhabited. And right around our point in the story, there seems to have been an explosion of land grants to religious houses, where kings and other powerful nobles granted enormous portions of land to the institutions. And honestly, the land itself was quite nice. 
It wasn't like the nobility had a habit of giving the clergy some horrible fetid swamp or something that they didn't want. Generally, many of the better monasteries and abbeys were on prime real estate. They are up high, overlooking the community, maybe also overlooking a major waterway or land route. And this would have given the houses both stature as well as the ability to stay in touch with the community and the outside world. Being close to waterways and roads, for example, would place them on trade routes, and there were all sorts of advantages that came from that. And further, this was not empty wild land when it was given. It often had a significant population that was tied to the land, and they came with it. And that fact answers a question that you might have had. Given the economy of the time, how did these monasteries and abbeys survive? Well, they survived largely the same way that the nobility did, through the labor of the lower classes, who then paid food rent and tithes up the ladder which, in turn, freed the monks, nuns, and assorted clergy to essentially live a life free of hard labor. The wealth being funneled up to them allowed those living at Hartlepool and comparable monasteries to focus all their energies elsewhere. But it had a very interesting side effect in that the clergy were essentially able to live lives very similar to the nobility. And I suppose that makes sense when considering how many of these houses were packed with the kin of noble families. So we can guess that for the average farmer, little changed when a monastery or abbey took over. They were still being taxed, and they were still being ruled by the same group of families, only rather than their rent going to their lord, it now went to a bishop or an abbess. And if you're asking how could these nobles afford to just hand over entire communities to the clergy, don't forget the talks that we've been having regarding the economy of the time. These people had land and wealth to spare, and a lot of it. We're not talking about President Obama-level wealth. We're talking about super Anglo-Saxon Bill Gates. These people had more wealth than they could dispose of. In the case of some more powerful dynasties, I mean that literally. Running around and annexing minor kingdoms like Lindsay and the Middle Angles was certainly paying off for them. And religious houses were probably a cheaper way of dealing with the ambitions of family members who weren't destined to inherit and might have been sharpening their knives. I mean, that's got to be kind of scary for family reunions. So creating a leisurely and dignified residence for potential rivals to live in was probably the best way to go, and it was certainly preferable to giving them individual tracts of land, which might only serve to make them more powerful and more of a threat in court. By doing it this way, all the liege really needs to worry about is the bishop or the abbess, rather than a host of extended relatives who all had smaller tracts of land. And as a bonus... None of these nobles were having kids now, or at least they weren't supposed to be having kids. So the family tree was being pruned without anyone needing to go to war. It's kind of ingenious when you think about it. And given this aspect of how the monasteries were organized and used, I suppose it isn't too surprising that they had a reputation for spending more time studying booze than they did studying the Bible. But I want to make it clear that I'm not painting all of them with the same brush. There were certainly incredibly pious individuals and learned scholars. Some of the manuscripts and sculptures that were produced in the monasteries at this period are astounding. And of course, we're getting into the era of Bede, so there certainly were some bright lights. 
but I also wanted to make sure that I described some of the structural conditions that these houses were founded under and why that might have contributed to the less than pious reputation that the English clergy had at this point in history. So given that these institutions had the possibility of being packed with the royal dynasty's extended family, you might be wondering what their living conditions were like. Well, if you're imagining a big dormitory at Hartlepool, maybe with bunk beds and just rows upon rows of monks, think again. There, like at many of the Irish-inspired monasteries, the monks and nuns would have had their own cells. But rather than being roundhouses like their Irish brethren, they had their own English-inspired rectangular timber houses with hipped roofs. If you're not sure what a hipped roof is, if you imagine a roof that slopes down to the four walls, like the roof on an average ranch-style house, you're probably not far off. Now, these houses weren't very big. For example, at Hartlepool, the residences generally had a footprint of just over 2 by 4 meters, or just under 31 square feet. So, these weren't palatial, baby-boomer-style McMansions. And if we just go by square footage, they were meager, even when compared with their secular contemporaries. But, don't forget that they didn't need to house a family in there. Just a single person. So, they didn't need a lot of space. And consequently, lack of square footage doesn't necessarily show a lack of comfort. Further, the amount of timber that was used, the building material, and the decoration that these homes had was lavish in comparison with their larger secular contemporaries. For example, we've seen evidence that some of them had decorative stonework and fine plaster interiors. So it might help to think of them as really nice tiny houses. And possibly my favorite part is the fact that it wasn't just the interior that was decorated. So was the exterior. And on the outside of these homes in Hartlepool, we find thick plastering for insulation, and that might have actually been decorated to make them look like they were built out of stone. Now, why stone? Well, stone homes were quite in vogue for monasterial enclaves. So it makes you wonder if they couldn't quite afford stone cells at Hartlepool, but they still wanted to keep up appearances. And interestingly, we don't have a ton of evidence of how Hartlepool interacted with the local community, but we can be relatively sure that they did. After all, remember how I mentioned that the houses weren't entirely isolated from their communities? That probably wasn't by accident. The image you might have of a monk or nun in this era is someone who lives in seclusion, isolated from the rest of the world. And there certainly were hermitages and isolated retreats that were used exactly for that purpose. But much of the monastic life in this period in British history appears to have been engaged, at least to some degree, with the lay population that they lived with. But for a better view of how these communities interacted with the people, we should look at a community that was established in Essex, and one that is remarkably different from the double monastery at Hartlepool. The nunnery at Nasingbury. Now, Nasingbury is of particular interest to us because the royal land grants that founded the community were made at the end of the 7th century and the start of the 8th century. So right around the point in time that we've been talking about in the show. And as you probably remember from earlier episodes, the East Saxons had a rather tense relationship with Christianity, having ejected it from their borders on at least one occasion. And you might recall that Raidwald's powerful pagan queen was a princess of Essex. 
and the East Saxons appear to have been rather reluctant to convert. But they did eventually convert, and beginning with a gift to Bishop Ked, and then with Nasingbury, the royal dynasty began to grant land to the clergy of this new religion. Now, unlike Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow, and unlike Hartlepool, there's no evidence of intellectual pursuits at Nasingbury that survived. However, looking closely at the cemetery that was excavated on site, we're still able to learn quite a bit about how these nuns interacted with the world around them. There are over 190 people buried at Nasingbury, and the majority of them were buried during our time frame, the 7th and 8th centuries. And perhaps it doesn't come as a surprise to you that most of the dead at Nasingbury were women. After all, it was a nunnery, and many of them had lived to the age of at least 45. So we have quite a bit we can learn from the state of their burials, as well as their general condition. To start with, the early burials were placed in alignment with where we believe the chapel or mortuary would have stood. And this is in keeping with how the dead were buried in Francia. So right off the bat, we're given the impression of Frankish influence at this religious house, possibly through Canterbury. Which in itself I find very interesting, because here you have Frankish influence, and up north in Hartlepool, we had Irish influence. So just like we've been hearing about in earlier episodes, we're seeing foreign influence upon the religious people of Britain. But one really interesting part of how these early burials were laid out is found with four graves that appear to have been placed in the floor inside of the building. You know, inside that chapel or mortuary. And it's thought that they were placed right about where the altar stood. Now, do you remember all the way back to the early Scottcast episodes where we talked about the strange homes at Clad Halan, where the dead were buried beneath the walls and it looks like they basically mummified Granny and just, you know, kept her around the house like a stuffed animal? Well, maybe not like a stuffed animal, but they did keep mummified bodies around. Well, it doesn't look like the nuns at Nasingbury went quite that far, but it is interesting that we're seeing a return of the burials within buildings. During Roman times, graves and the dead were kept pretty far away. The Romans were about as spooked by the dead as most of us are, Goths notwithstanding. But, as the power of Rome shattered in Britain, some of those taboos went with it. And here, in Nasingbury, we're seeing an example of how one of those taboos has weakened. And while there's no evidence that these burials came out of an old prehistoric tradition, it is interesting to see the old ways coming back to Britannia, but now within a new religion. Anyway, so these burials. The two earliest graves were women, who were probably at least in their 50s, and based upon their location and their age, they were probably the founders of Nasingbury, or at least the first abbesses. Now the other two were buried later on, and were a woman and a rather, well, let's say rotund man who died in his 30s or 40s. Now, what on earth is a man doing being buried in the chapel of a nunnery? It's a bit odd, isn't it? Well, this was a period where we had a great deal of cults venerating saints. And don't forget that royal dynasties were stacking these nunneries and monasteries with members of their own families. And it didn't take long before some of the nuns, monks, and other clergy worked as a sort of unofficial arm promoting dynastic cults and family saints. So these later burials could very well include a saint or two, which could account for the later burials of the middle-aged man and the woman. 
And honestly, at this point in history, it really is no surprise that we're seeing high-status burials within the chapel. And I say that because it is in this era that we begin to see monasteries and other religious houses memorializing their dead, either with monuments or with long lists that can be remembered at liturgical services. And they did this, at least in part, because they believed that the prayers of the living could help the salvation of the dead. So that's kind of nice. Though when you think about it, the concept of a post-mortem popularity contest is pretty weird. I mean, that means that Lord Unferth the murderer might have been going to hell, but since his family in the monastery prayed for a couple generations, now he was getting a reprieve. Seriously? Well, it was a popular notion at the time, so it might have been going on there as well. Now, while the original chapel looks like it was torn down and replaced, people kept being buried pretty close to the original cemetery, and even close to the church itself. And as with those earlier graves, it looks like the high-status graves were also the burials that were closest to the church. And interestingly, some of the high-status burials contain objects that appear to be amulets. You might remember the discussion of amulets in the last episode. And their presence here suggests that even within Christian communities like this one, even with the church's attempt to eliminate amulets and other magical objects, we're still seeing that magical thinking was alive and well in Britain. So that's made some of the high-status burials rather exciting. But the vast majority of the graves were rather plain and didn't contain any objects. But simply because the graves were plain doesn't mean that they were not high-status women. For example, when looking at their bones, we see that they don't appear to have suffered from malnutrition, and actually, they appear to have consisted primarily on a diet of finely processed grain. Now that right there tells us something about how the nunnery operated, and in general, you do see monks, nuns, and clergy of other similar houses in rather good condition. And what that tells us is that they must have not just collected food rents, but also closely supervised what they were collecting, or at least had slaves or workers who did it for them. Because as anyone who's eaten top ramen can tell you, simply eating food doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get all the nutrients you need. You need a healthy diet. And they weren't likely to just stumble upon it simply by collecting whatever food was available from their tenants. What if everyone just started growing alfalfa all of a sudden? They needed a plan, and these women were living well, so they had to have had a complex infrastructure that ensured that. Further, based upon their average age and condition, it looks like they were celibate. Now, how do we know that? Well, first, they were nuns. But beyond that, if they weren't celibate, more of them would have died young due to the dangers of pregnancy and childbirth. So what we're probably seeing are high-status women who lived celibate lives in a nunnery. So pretty much exactly what we expected. But while I said that most of the graves were women, I didn't say that all of them were. There were men. And while the women appear to have been mostly high status, the same was not true of the men. The bones of these guys all show the wear and tear that you would expect to see on someone who lived a hard life of manual labor. And the condition of their teeth suggests that their diet was also quite a bit more rough. So what we're talking about here are probably the remains of the servants and slaves who tended to the nuns. And actually, we also see a few women who are in similar condition, so they probably were also servants or slaves. So, while the nuns were free to focus upon nunning, 
The upkeep of Nasingbury, the farming, the food rent collection, and all the various tasks that were required to keep the community going were probably handled by these individuals. Sounds a bit like how a high-status residence would be operated, doesn't it? But there's one more group of graves that I want to tell you about, and these are the most interesting of the bunch. There are about a dozen graves that contain the remains of children, and the vast majority of those children died when they were between the ages of five and seven. Further, all the children appear to have suffered from serious illnesses or anemia before they died. So what's going on there? In prior episodes, we've discussed oblates, child monks. So, are we seeing child nuns? If that's the case, the nuns at Nasingbury would have had to have been extremely neglectful and downright incompetent to justify what we've found. And honestly, with the illnesses, there would have had to have been a nun suffering from Munchausen's by proxy or something along those lines. So I seriously doubt these were child nuns. But there is another explanation, and one that's much more interesting and I think much more likely. The nuns might have been caring for injured, disabled, or otherwise unwell children. In some written sources, we read of monasteries and other religious houses providing health care to the people of their communities. And at these locations, we do see a corresponding increase of graves containing the bodies of sick children. So maybe the same thing was happening at Nasingbury. Now interestingly, the nuns at Nasingbury handled child burials differently from their contemporaries. At other locations, such as Whithorn, we find the children were placed rather haphazardly into their graves. There's no rhyme or reason to how they were laid out. Their bodies were often just twisted one way or another. And some scholars have taken this to mean that they were hastily placed in the ground, while their bodies were still in rigor mortis. At Nasingbury, the children were buried in the same way as the adults, so laid out carefully which would have required that the nuns wait until rigor mortis passed. Further, their graves were interspersed with the adult burials, rather than being given their own section like some of the other institutions did. Now, why the difference in burial practices? Were the nuns at Nasingbury just less troubled by the concept of a child's death? So consequently, they just didn't feel rushed to place the body immediately in the ground? It's impossible to divine motivations from something like this, so it's something that we might just always have to ponder over, but it is interesting that they did it differently. But something to note here is that the children were not the only individuals who suffered from illnesses. We also see a few graves containing men who suffered from congenital disorders, including Down syndrome and hydrocephalus. And that's led some scholars to suggest that Nasingbury, like some other religious houses, might have provided accommodation to members of royal dynasties who were unable to take part in all the activities that a nobleman of this era would be expected to take part in. So, what's the takeaway from all of this? What have we learned from the digs at Nasingbury and Hartlepool? Well, I would say the first thing that jumps out to me is that status is alive and well. And we're already seeing that dynasties were entrenching themselves within these orders, and at times, using them for their own benefit. And I'd say that we're also seeing that some of these communities were operating very much like the nobility, and that the commoners were likely working very hard to support both classes. And that could explain some of the wild behavior that was apparently taking place in some English religious orders at the time. But on the other hand, it is nice to see that literacy was being maintained and was starting to make a comeback. 
Further, it's gratifying to see that at least some of them were caring for the ill. Though it is impossible from the digs to know whether this sort of care was restricted based upon class or whether it was available to everyone in the community. So I suppose that the takeaway that I'm left with is that unless you are part of the royal dynasty, life was probably pretty hard, regardless of whether or not you were living under the direction of a religious house. All right, thanks for sitting through yet another episode where I'm battling off a cold and my voice sounds a bit weird. Really, I'm sorry about that. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you name it. And you can join all those podcasts and maybe even get reviews on NyQuil versus DayQuil at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>